Good evening, and a very warm welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Jason Alexander, and I'm a professor in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. I'm very pleased to be here to introduce Professor John Worrell, also from the department, to give his exaugural lecture. John first arrived at the LSE more than 50 years ago as an undergraduate to study mathematical statistics with the remarkably practical intention of becoming an actuary. <laughs> but those plans were quickly derailed when he enrolled in an introduction to logic class and sat in a series of lectures given by the legendary Karl Popper. John was hooked and his life's trajectory was radically altered. He switched his studies from statistics to philosophy and began studying mathematical logic with Imre Lakatos. As was customary for the time, this was back before universities cared about such things as student contact hours, Lakatos gave John a long list of books to read and told him to go away and not return until he had read them all. <laughs> I think John thinks that Lakatos wasn't expecting to see him again. But John was back in his office just a few months later. Lakatos recognized John's abilities and from that point on took a keen interest in supervising his studies, his PhD, and his early career. John is what we in academia call a lifer. He spent his whole career at the LSE. In that time, he did some truly great work. He has advanced our understanding of the methodology of scientific research programs through his case studies of 19th century optics. His biggest contribution to philosophy is the revival and defense of the theory of structural realism. John is recognized as having written the classic paper on the subject. Later in his career, John turned his attention to the philosophy of medicine, specifically the area of evidence-based medicine. On hearing that, your reaction might be to ask, well, what else would medicine be based on? I suspect John will give us the answer to that question tonight. Before we begin, some details. For the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Evidence. Please could you put your phone on silent so as to not disrupt the event. This evening's event is also being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. As usual, after the lecture, there will be the chance for the audience to put your questions to Professor Worrell, and there will be a reception at the end to which you are all invited. But now, will you please join me in welcoming Professor John Worrell to deliver his exaugural lecture entitled, Evidence-Based Everything, but let's do the basing properly. Thank you. Ah, that was a good timing, timing Sebastian. Uh, uh, how do I make this work? Does anybody know? Oh, that's the click. I wonder what that was. It looks like an advanced clicker. What? That, that's a panic button or something. <laughs> In that case, somebody thinks I've panicked already several so times. Click left or right. Ah, there we go. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's a very bad start. Well, Jason just gave the first part of the lecture, but let's uh, do it again anyway. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, a recurrent theme in my career, basically the theme of theory and evidence, uh, uh, logic of evidence, if you like. Uh, I started off very much under the influence initially of this man, 
uh, and more particularly this one that Jason already mentioned, uh, thinking about uh, evidence of scientific revolution. So there have been these very, apparently very sharp changes in, in accepted theory during the course of the history of physics from Newton's classical theory to the general theory of, and general and special theories of relativity from uh, theory of, uh, from classical physics to quantum theory and at much more homely level uh, changes in our uh, conception of what, of what light is. And I was interested in the issue of what uh, justified or what underwrote those changes in fundamental theory. Uh, so, in particular, uh, as I say, the, the, the theory of light. People in the, 19, in the 18th century and the 17th century used to believe that light consists of tiny material particles fired machine gun fashion from light sources. And then that was changed in the early, or re rejected in favor of a different theory in the early 19th century that light consists not of matter at all, but of motion, of periodic motion, transmitted through an all-pervading uh, elastic solid medium. That was Fresnel's theory, and that in turn replaced by Maxwell's theory that light consists of vibrations, all right, but not of any medium, rather of uh, values of the electric and magnetic field vectors uh, and then that's replaced by Einstein's photon theory in incorporated into the deeply wonderful quantum field theory. So what's going on? What, what is it that, what sort of evidence, presumably is evidence against what fashionable sociologists at the time used to argue, what sort of evidence is it that does that, in particular, uh, that justifies those changes? In particular, do, do predictions carry more evidential weight than accommodations? Does the fact that a theory... Uh, unbeknown perhaps to its creator, have as a consequence a prediction about a phenomenon that nobody else has, nobody's ever thought of before that turns out to in, indeed be a phenomenon, does that count more than accommodating some already known phenomenon with, 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 within the theory? Uh, it's certainly the predictions that get the, that get the headlines. Einstein didn't uh, get the t headline in the Times for uh, accommodating the known anomalous precession of Mercury's perihelion. Though actually, I think that was the more important evidence. Uh, he got it for predicting correctly the, uh, the effect of, of the, the gravitational attraction of the sun on light, to, in bending the light rays, causing the famous outcome of the eclipse experiments run by uh, eclipse observations run by Eddington. And similarly, in the case of, of, of uh, Fresnel's wave theory of light, the switch to the theory that light consists of vibrations in an all-pervading medium, uh, the, 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 the phenomenon that gets the uh, that gets the highlight is, was a prediction. Uh, I, uh, the, the famous story is that Fresnel submitted his memoir on diffraction for a competition run by the French Academy. And Poisson, who was a smart guy, and on, the, uh, and on the judging panel deduced as a consequence from Fresnel's theory that if you hold a, an opaque disc, like a 5P piece, in the light diverging from a point source, then far from the, there being a solid uh, shadow, as geometrical optics would predict, if you look at the very center of the shadow, there'll be a bright spot. And the, in fact, it will be just as bright as if no opaque disk were interposed. Story is that uh, Fresnel's theory was in danger of being laughed out of court. Uh, but of course, he did the experiment with his pal Arago. Turns out there is a white spot at the center of the shadow of the disk. Uh, and this, carried, this is supposed to carry the day. It's all very nice non-history as a matter of fact but anyway uh, uh, do predictions carry more evidential weight than accommodations and then I spent some time uh, thinking about what favorable evidence for a fundamental theory tells us about that theory 
the obvious answer being that it tells us that the theory is likely to be true, but that runs into trouble with the phenomenon of theory change that I've already just mentioned. So we do, I think, want to say that, uh, that there was evidence, indeed is evidence for Fresnel's theory from the white spot, for, from the observation of the white spot, for example, but it can't be for the truth of that, can't be from our current perspective at any rate, for the truth of that theory, because we know the theory is not true because we have still better theories that contradict it. So Maxwell's theory says that there's no such thing as the ether, the elastic solid medium that Fresnel postulated as the carrier of the, of the light wave. So it can't literally be true. And basically what I argued, as, as Jason said, essentially following Poincaré, uh, was that if you abstract from a few metaphysical bells and whistles and just look at what the real theory is, the mathematical equations that whereby it claims that the phenomena are structured, then those fundamental theory changes look a lot less radical than you might think, and there is a, 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 a fundamental continuity in the history of science despite so-called scientific revolutions, and we can be realists, we can think that there's evidence for essentially the structural correctness or approximate structural correctness of our theories despite theory change. But let, rather than me telling you any more about structural realism, why don't we let Alex sing it? Um, so uh, just to fill in a few, success means predictive success. Pessimistic induction is just this phenomenon of theory change that I've talked about. And I wrote a paper that Jason kindly referred to called Structural Realism, the best of both worlds, question mark, and that's why the both worlds is here. It's not very loud. I woke up this morning, science is success of my mind. I woke this morning, science is success of my mind. You can follow this presentation. If you don't believe in miracles, you gotta be a realist of some kind. But in the middle of the night, the pessimistic induction got me. Yeah, in the middle of the night, the pessimistic induction got me. It seems a realist can't handle theory change in history. So I tossed and I turned and I thought my mind would rupture. You know what's coming, huh? I tossed and I turned and I thought my mind would rupture. Think of Maxwell, oh my theory fits out so well. You see the equations are completely preserved. So come on and give structural realism a world. Nearly finished. Metaphysics. Oh, this fat dude, there's another fat dude later on, that's me, but this is Henri Poincaré. Yeah, metaphysics, it comes and it goes. But the contents in the structure, the structure, it just grows and grows. So if you want to have the very best of both worlds, yeah, if you want to have the 
definitely, you're definitely too kind. Okay, so I'm not, you'll be glad to know that I'm not going to talk at all about structural realism anymore. Uh, be the last you hear of it tonight, and maybe if you've got some good luck, uh, the last time you'll ever hear about it. Um, what I'm going to talk about is the general uh, concept of evidence and uh, evidence-based stuff, eventually on evidence-based medicine, which has been a long interest of mine based on literally thousands now, I suppose, of over-dinner conversations with my resident live-in uh, evidence-based medic, uh, my wife Jennifer. Uh, so uh, here's a famous philosopher called David Hume, uh, and he famously said, a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. It should have been, well, he meant really degrees of belief, but either way, you might be thinking, look, if that's all it takes to be a famous philosopher, then count me in, that's easy. I mean, <laughs> statement, surely a statement of the bleeding obvious. What else are you going to believe, base your beliefs on if you want them to be rational than the evidence, whether your bunions are playing up, whether what the Delphic Oracle says? Well, to be fair to Hume, he did say a lot of other things as well, but I think this, state, this statement itself is a statement of the bleeding obvious. We want everything to be based on evidence, because I don't believe the naive empiricist view that, everything's that all our theories are based on evidence in the sense that they're just generalizations of the data. There's a role, obviously, for intuition and the uh, natural light of reason that the rationalists like to talk about in arriving at theories, but once you've arrived at a theory, then it's a question of whether it stands up to the evidence or not, surely, or belief about the world. That surely uh, must be uh, the case. When I say evidence-based everything, my, my wife asks me, well, what about evidence-based art? Well, it's not, art's not a, a, a theory wherein you, or the practice of art is not a, a production of claims about the world. It, everything just means any time that we're making some sort of claim about the world. That we, we, we want to base that on evidence. The problem is that everybody thinks that, and most of the people are wrong. Uh, if you, for example, if you go onto the website of uh, the hated but also convenient Amazon and uh, look under books and then under evidence, alongside all the books uh, on the, the law books on on evidence, which are perfectly worthy, obviously, and alongside nice things like evidence-based medicine, a beginner's guide to evidence-based healthcare and social care, evidence-based teaching, a practical approach. Evidence-based is really spread out from the initial. Uh, evidence-based medicine movement, which was medicine being the first discipline to have a self-professed evidence-based uh, project. Uh, evidence-based school leadership and management, these are all real titles of books, I'm not making them up, practical guide. Evidence-based policing, sounds interesting. <laughs> uh, but it's, alongside all that, uh, there's also evidence that demands a verdict, historical evidences for the Christian faith. When everybody, when everybody says their PhD in, in the title of a book, you know it's going to be crap. Uh, <laughs> best evidence, disguise and deception in the assassination of John F. Kennedy? I don't think so. Best evidence, this would be a very short book if it really were about evidence. The best scientific evidence for ESP, psychokinesis, mental healing, ghosts and poltergeists. And the origins of the universe, the evidence cries creation. No, I don't think it does cry creation, it cries evolution. Uh, and again, I could have extended this list more or less indefinitely. And so they're wrong. So we've got a problem. Everybody thinks they adhere to Hume's dictum, or at any rate, everybody claims that they think that they adhere to Hume's dictum. 
This, uh, in fact, we're only going to have one objectionable crazy. You'll be pleased to know in the end. It was for time. So this, this guy, objectionable crazy number one, Sean Spicer, even claims that there's evidence that there were more people at uh, Trump's inauguration party than there were at, uh, at Barack Obama's. And as you can see from this photographic evidence, he's absolutely correct. <laughs> there are many more people on the right than on the left, right? Don't get it? Well, this is, Sean would explain if he were here, and he sends his apologies, he would have liked to have been here. But uh, what's happened is you're, you're in the grip of an optical illusion, because uh, we all know that Trump is very concerned with the environment. And by the time he had his inauguration party, there were protective uh, flooring uh, covering the grass on the right. And it's the fact that that's so bright and draws your attention that there's an optical illusion that there are, there are more gaps and therefore fewer people on the right than on the left. And if, it turn, if you check, for example, the, the number of uh, journeys made on the Washington Metro in 2009 compared to 2017, many, many more in 2009. But of course, we all know that everybody employed by the Washington Metro is a leftist, pinko, liberal, <laughs> Democrat voter, very happy to, to forge the data. Okay, well, so everybody thinks that they've got evidence in their favour. Well, we're going to talk about Alex Jones, who thinks there's evidence that the Sandy Hook um, school massacre never occurred, and we were also going to talk about him. I just left that in, just on the grounds that we can share with uh, Boris, or you can hiss a bit as well, if you like, but uh, share with him what, even by his own spectacularly high standards, is a dreadful bad hair day. Uh, <laughs> and it's very nice for me to reflect that sometimes that maybe when it comes to hair, the option of having none may not be the worst. The same stream medicine, med, which, I, which will be the focus of my attention if I ever get beyond the jokes. Um, Evidence-based medicine likes to present itself as newly introducing evidence into medicine, but of course it's not true. People in the days of so-called heroic medicine when there was all this bloodletting and so on, they all thought that they, that they had evidence for, their, for the effectiveness of the theory. After all, everybody uh, who... Uh, there were some people who recovered uh, after the treatment, we would say despite the treatment now, uh, but there were people, and they could be attributed to uh, as showing the, uh, that it was, the treatment was effective, the bloodletting or whatever it might be, and it, uh, those people who died, well, they're going to die anyway, and they might have died sooner and in more pain if you hadn't treated them. So you can always... Uh, they, they certainly believe, and incorrectly, of course, just like Spicer's claim is, is incorrect. So the basic message is, look, of course we want to base everything on, on, uh, on evidence, but that's not perhaps so straightforward as you might think what, 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 what's happened there. Now, I, I don't think you need any fantasy philosophy of science to uh, tell you that there's no real evidence that there were more people at Trump's inauguration party than there were at Obama's. But I, 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 so we don't need any general principles, but there are some general principles that will help in other cases. So let's draw them, because I think they sort of stand out pretty, uh, pretty clearly in this case. First of all, the consistency with the data is not enough. This sounds trivial, uh, but it's, it's, this, this is the mistake that all the conspiracy theories make. They think that if they can tell you a story with enough ad hoc assumptions, if, if uh, Sean Spicer can ad hoc it away, making extra assumptions about... Um, 
uh, about optical illusions and fake data and so on, eventually we'll get a, a theory that's consistent with the data that says that the, fu the fundamental part of which is that there were more people at Trump's inauguration than, than at Obama's. Well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough for science at any rate. Here's my favorite illustration of this. This is a guy called Philip Goss, who was a 19th century uh, naturalist, and he wrote a book called Omphalos, an attempt to untie the geological knot in 1857. Uh, are there any Greek speakers in the audience? Of course there are. So, Yanis, tell us what omphalos means. Ah, somebody else beat you to it. Yeah, if you're a softy southerner, you might say that. Tommy Buttoner. The remains of your umbilical cord, let's say. Okay. Yeah, so not navel in the, in the, in the armada sense. Uh, now, this is, a, this is a wonderful book, uh, though you do get tired after a while. Uh, it, it, starts out, uh, it starts out a very centric concern with the burning issue of why Adam had a navel. That's why it's on philosophy. <laughs> Given that he had a rather non-standard method of production, which didn't require uh, an umbilical cord. Uh, he doesn't talk much about, if anything, about Eve, who equally would have... And he doesn't tell you why he thinks that Adam did have a navel, because I don't think it says in Genesis. From my detailed study of Genesis, it's not clear to me that it actually says it there. Uh, presume it's just sort of Renaissance painting that with, had him with a navel, and so he thought he must have had a navel. But anyway, after about 100 pages, he comes to the, he comes to the conclusion, uh, rather turgid 100 pages, um, <laughs> that, well, why not? Why should he have a navel? <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways, after all, so he could give Adam a navel if he wanted. And this, by the way, says Goss, is the clue to why it seems like there are many things in the world that are much older than uh, could be accounted for by the theory that God created the world in, in 2004 BC or whatever uh, f uh, figure they take. Uh, and that's because God created the world uh, uh, in part as if it already were very old. So he put the fossils in the rocks. They're not fossils, they're just bits of stuff that he put in the rock, just like he put a navel on, on Adam. Well, you can see, this explains, this makes it, you know, the theory consistent with the fossil record that we'd all think really supports uh, Darwin. But it's obviously not a, a good scientific theory. It doesn't have re any real evidence in its favor because it's simply accommodating the phenomena without making any, without any hint of any independent testability. So there is something here about, you know, that Popper wrote about. To compare that with the discovery of Neptune, famous episode from the history of physics, uh, so contrast Goss with Adams and, and Leverrier. Basically what happens there is that uh, Herschel discovered by, just by careful observation a new planet that he called Uranus, and it turned out that Uranus's path didn't accord with Newtonian principles. The, the, the deduction that you made from... Uh, Newton's theory plus, of course, initial conditions and auxiliary assumptions didn't give you the right path. Just like you don't get the right story of the furniture of the universe from the, from the suggestion that it was, it, it, it was created only a couple of thousand years ago, uh, so you ad hoc away and you say, oh no, well, God created the world already old in various places. So they said, uh, look, Newton's theory's got to be true. I'm still going to stick to that. I'm not going to give up my theory just because there's this anomalous data. And they worked back from, uh, from the assumption that Newton's theory had to be true to what, how they would have to change the initial conditions so that they got the right account of Uranus. 
Uh, and that led to the pr uh, prediction. Uh, they said, look, that we, don't know, we don't necessarily know all the planets. Maybe there's another planet that we'd misidentified as a fixed star. Uh, and it, if we take that, if take its gravitational interaction with Uranus into account, we'll get the right account from Newton. And they worked backwards, and uh, that's how it turned out to be. But you can see in this case there's independent testability. You can't postulate a, uh, a new planet without, being, without there being testable predictions about what you'll see if you look in the night sky at a certain time and in a certain direction. Unlike the uh, Goscott dodge, which is obviously completely untestable. No, no, it's made to be untestable. So that's how we do it in science. And if somebody says, why should we do it the science way? Well, that you can wear the answer in the form of that T-shirt, that science works whether you believe it or not. Okay, there's a second principle, that we, a general principle that we can derive from, that's illustrated, I think, by, uh, by the uh, Sean Spicer case. And again, remarkably powerful, that E counts strongly in favor of a theory T if E not only fits T, but also undermines plausible rival theories. This is the so what else might it be idea. Let me jump the base stuff, though. It is explained very nicely within the Bayesian framework. But, you know, you can see in the crazy case of, of, of uh, Sean Spicer that there's no real, you, you want to say there's no real evidence that there were, for his theory, once he's ad hoc it all, all around, because there's an, an, an altogether more plausible theory, namely the theory that there were actually more people at Obama's uh, inauguration party, which explains all the data uh, and explains it better. More seriously, and now I, do turn, I will turn to evidence-based medicine at last, the, the principle two that says that evidence is only strong insofar as it not only fits the theory that you're looking at, but also disfits, if you like, the, the plausible rivals to it, it underwrites the whole process of controlling clinical trials. So take the usual hackneyed example, give a, a vitamin C to a whole bunch of people suffering from the common cold uh, and look at what happens in a week. They all recover. No, that's no evidence at all for the effectiveness of vitamin C uh, because they might have recovered otherwise. So you need a control group. There's an alternative theory, namely the theory of natural history, that it explains the data equally. So you look for some differentiation between those two theories and you set up a control group. You then worry that uh, maybe the people in the control group are younger, healthier, and so on. These are all rival explanations for the positive outcome of the trial that people did get better. Let's say it turns out that more people in the control group get better than in the, more people in the experimental group than in the control group. Uh, so you, you control again, you, 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 you make your evidence tell between the theory that vitamin C is effective and the, the possible rival theory that it's the, the control group has more younger people, more fitter people in it, and so on, by matching the control and the experimental group. It underwrites that whole process. Okay. So now I do want to uh, talk about evidence-based medicine. So what we've agreed on, I hope, is that Obviously, medicine should be based on evidence. Any rational process, should, rational discipline should be based on evidence. The question comes in the details. What, what counts as evidence? What counts as strong evidence? Uh, we need to hear more before we can say whether this is a good thing or not. Well, EBM, which was, as I say, a self-consciously pro-evidence uh, 
movement in, within, within medicine, beginning at McMaster University in Canada in the late 1980s, early 90s, uh, had a, what looked at any rate like a distinctive view of what counts as evidence and what being evidence-based uh, would mean for medicine. And it's the, so, for example, you get this quote for what might be called the founding document of the, pro, of the movement uh, by David Sackey. EBM is a new paradigm, always new paradigms, that de-emphasizes intuition, unsystematic clinical expertise and pathophysiological rationale, a sufficient grounds for clinical decision-making, and stresses the examination of evidence from clinical research, which means clinical trials and absolutely centrally randomized controlled trials. These are trials, I'm sure most of you know, in which the, the way that you split up, I talked about control groups and experimental groups just now, uh, random, trials randomized if the process by which you divide people into the experimental as against the, the control group is random. Equivalent to tossing a coin, though it's usually whether a randomly produced number is even or odd. Well, many people took it initially that uh, this was, the EBM was underwriting a very, very strong and therefore very, very easily criticized uh, because much too strong uh, version of what, of what evidence is. So it seemed to, to many that they were saying pathophysiological rationale carries no evidential weight, neither does clinical intuition or, or judgment. The only real evidence is evidence from clinical trials, and amongst clinical trials, the only ones that really count are randomized control trials. But you can see already from this quotation, if you look at it at all carefully, uh, that there's no, this is altogether too strong uh, an interpretation of, of what they were saying. Um, so they, it's true that they, for example, de-emphasize pathophysiological rationale. That means the knowledge, or attempted knowledge of the underlying mechanisms that are going on when you, give some, when you give somebody a certain treatment, so the biochemistry of its a pharmacological treatment. They de-emphasize that, but only as a, a sufficient ground for clinical decision-making. Nobody ever thought that uh, the underlying biochemistry could possibly be sufficient on its own, because one for one thing, a treatment might work exactly as, as it says on the tin in terms of the biochemistry, but have terrible side effects. So it has the right effect on the target disorder, but has terrible side effects. So you'd certainly want to try it out. I mean, everybody would, would, would agree with that. So they didn't, they didn't uh, say this, and there's been a whole industry in interpreting what they did mean. And of course, in the meantime, there have been lots of uh, additions to uh, in terms of hierarchies, uh, in terms of the grade system that I won't have time to talk about, in terms of emphasizing systematic reviews. Uh, and as for the issue of, of whether ran only randomization count, although you can find people who would identify with the evidence-based movement who say that, so here's Michael Baum saying, without RCTs there's no evidence but only guesswork. Unrandomized studies may point in a direction, but they never provide evidence. This is slightly more nuanced, but not much. Only, only RCTs can tend to prove or actually prove. Although you can find people like that, the grandees in the evidence-based medicine movement were always a, a lot more equivocal. And as I say, the, 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 thing, the, the whole position has been very much uh, developed, modified, added to with all these hierarchies, grade system, uh, and, uh, and the like. And one of the things I thought I might do in this, in this was try and pick my way through all this uh, 
extra detail, but I decided it was going to be too complex uh, to do that, though I'm happy to, to talk about my views on randomization, which have also uh, be, uh, drawn some attention, mostly negative. Um, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the lecture, in the uh, question and answer, but what I t uh, decided to do instead, just for time purposes, is to do a little, oh, shouldn't have sung that, uh, is to do a little case study that carries the same message. Because the main, the main take-home message, you might think this is a statement of the bleeding obvious as well, it's just going to be, uh, of course we want everything to be based on evidence, or in particular we want medicine to be based on evidence, but things are not so simple when you get down to the details of what basically not evidence means. Uh, and I could do that via uh, an elaboration or a, a, a look, trying to look through this whole structure, what, what evidence-based med medics are really saying about randomised trials and the rest. But as I say, I think that's going to be too complex. And I'm going to do a little study that illustrates in a different way that same message. Uh, and the case history concerns uh, homeopathy. Now, I can feel hearts sinking around the room at this point. Uh, People thinking, oh my God, OMG, you see how hip I am. John, we're not going to have to sit through you telling us that homeopathy is a pseudoscience. I know it's a Friday night and it's a public lecture rather than a research seminar, but come on, next minute you'll be telling us the Pope's a Catholic. Well, that's more interesting now than it used to be. Oh, that bears defecating the woods. Well, I am going to argue that it is pseudoscientific, surprise, surprise. Uh, but it's, it's the very fact that it's so obviously pseudoscientific that underwrites the message that I want to, to, to give. So hang on in there, don't look too bored too soon. And certainly, if, if this is shooting fish in a barrel, sociologically speaking, these are pretty big fish, because it makes them easy to shoot, but they're big. Uh, so it, it, as a, for example, just some random facts here, as of 2008, there were 300,000 so-called qualified homeopaths in India alone, along with 182 colleges of homeopathy and 300 homeopathic hospitals. Well, okay, developing world science has not got through fully, but over half the population of Belgium regularly relies on homeopathic remedies. In 2000, I don't have later data, in the US, the total money spent on homeopathic remedies was 1.5 billion. Sure, it'll be higher now. And uh, homeopathists got friends in high places, after all. Very high, if, you, if you're a monarchist, which of course I'm not. Uh, Prince Charles, of course, not, and it's not just Prince Charles, who can be more or less, anything that he endorses could be guaranteed to be guff. Uh, but, you know, even her momship, uh, who's not the sharpest knife in the, in the box, but not... <laughs> but not uh, not uh, anything like her son. Uh, she had, there's a Queen's homeopath, homeopath uh, at least there was, until he, the previous one uh, sadly died in a bike accident in, in August, a guy called Peter Fisher, I think. Uh, and, but I'm sure he's been replaced, so the Queen has a homeopath. So sociologically speaking, it's a big deal, because logically speaking, it's not a big deal at all. It's rubbish, as we'll now see. Uh, so it's based basically on two, as many of you will know, I'm sure, on two principles. One is called the law of similars that's usually translated as meaning like treats like. So any substance that, if taken in large amounts, produces the symptoms that are part of the symptoms of some disease is a plausible candidate for treating that disease. 
So Hahnemann, who set up uh, homeopathy uh, way back when, uh, was, uh, was eating some Peruvian, used to, was taking some Peruvian uh, tree bark that actually we now know contains quinine. It had been used to treat uh, malaria reasonably satisfactorily. He took large amounts of this tree bark and started to get sweats and shivers and stuff. And they said, ah, look, that, those are the symptoms of malaria. So in general, he said, illogically, uh, Whenever something produces in large amounts the, the symptoms of a, a disease, that's a plausible candidate, or maybe stronger than that, that it will definitely treat the, that disease. But, of course, worse from a – and there's no, that, that's completely logical. There's no evidence. There's lots and lots of counterexamples to it, and it's not even clear that Hahnemann's story really makes sense. Uh, but let's concentrate more on the second principle of homeopathy, that potency is proportional to the dilution level, that – the effectiveness of a, of a homeopathic treatment increases as you dilute it. Uh, uh, you're also supposed to succuss it, which just means shake it, um, but it sounds more scientific if you call it succussion. So uh, you start out putting a, uh, some substance that's supposed to have homeopathic properties uh, in, uh, in some diluent. Let's say it's always water, sometimes it's actually... Uh, alcohol, and sometimes you do it in a pill, but then it's a different story. But let's just stick to the water. Uh, you start with the mother, so that gives you something called the mother tincture, and then you progressively dilute it. So uh, let's go straight to this uh, diagram. This is a misleading diagram, in, in particular the nat nat natural substance thing we'll talk about in a second uh, is not true. But you put some stuff that you think is going to be homeopathically effective uh, and create in, in some diluent, it, it makes, uh, that makes the mother tincture. You then, for a, a C, there are also X, which are 10 times, but let's go for the big stuff. Uh, the, you, for a 1C homeopathic solution, you take one part of the mother tincture and add 99 parts of water, if that's your diluting substance, uh, and that creates a 1C uh, treatment, which you then dilute again one drop of, the, uh, of that mixture to 99 drops of pure water. And you do that in total uh, 30 times. You've got, a, you've got a 30C homeopathic, and that's much more potent than any X uh, dilution, certainly than, and certainly than 1C solutions. Now, that, that gives you... Uh, something in the ratio, of, a dilution in the ratio of one part to 10 to the 60. And that's way beyond Avogadro's, Avogadro's number, which is six times, roughly six times 10 to the 23. So in almost all, in, with, all, with all, all, to complete certainty in the probabilistic sense, that's probability one, that the bit of the substance you take out of the final test tube here doesn't contain a single uh, molecule of the original mother tincture. Uh, now, just let me pause it, and I'm sure some of you already know the sad story of my friend Dougie, who was taking homeopathic remedy for his osteoarthritic pain, and he first of all took a 1C uh, solution, and he thought maybe it was a bit better, so the next day he took a 10C solution and thought maybe, yeah, maybe. Next day he took the 100C solution. I suddenly the next day forgot to take anything altogether and died of an overdose. Um, 
So anyway, uh, this may be apocryphal. I don't guarantee it's veracity. Anyway, Avogadro's number is uh, six, roughly 6 times 10 to the 23, so it's almost certain that there's no, uh, there's no act, quote, active molecule. But there have been theories that the diluent can have a memory. Uh, there was a famous episode involving Benveniste, but the, the, there's absolutely stone-cold scientific evidence that that's not possible. Um, this is unfair, but I quite like it anyway. It's quite funny. Uh, it would have to be a very selective memory uh, <laughs> if you were going to be happy taking it. Um, now, let, just on that line, let me just warn you against being uh, against one slight misrepresentation of homeopathy. You, if you go online to Google Images, this is the sort of thing you'll find. They're making it seem as if homeopathy is sort of a branch of herbalism or something. Not, not, not at all. There's a whole list of so-called nosod sources for homeopathy, uh, including bacteria, pus, vomit, tumors, feces, and warts, not to mention, quixotically enough, Berlin Wall. Don't know why a Berlin Wall should be any different from any other brick and concrete construction, but it is. It's in, it's in the formulary of, the, of homeopathy. So you'd be quite pleased if you were taking any and homeopathic treatment that it was so dilute, right, if it's got some nosod. <laughs> source in it. Okay, so there's absolutely no doubt that home, the principles of homeopathy are pseudoscience. No question of any evidence in their favor. But that, it's a separate question whether homeopathy works. Uh, people say, though I wish they would name me a convincing example, that there's nothing so stupid that doesn't turn out to, that may not turn out later to work, but anyway. Uh, it could work still. Now we have to think a little bit about what that might mean, that homeopathy works. The answer is surely yes, for individuals, for some complaints. There are people who go in to consult a homeopath, they're given a homeopathic treatment, they've got, I don't know, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, mild depression, uh, pain. They'll get some uh, benefit, objective benefits we'll see as we go along, uh, in, in, in that case. The question, of course, is whether the objective benefit comes from the placebo effect or not. That is, oh, does the real, the real question when we say does homeopathy work is whether it works better than the placebo. Well, if that means are there RCTs that don't look terribly bad at any rate of homeopathy for, let's say, irritable bowel syndrome against placebo with a so-called positive result, according to the orthodox classical statistics uh, framework within which all these RCTs are performed, then the answer again is, bound to, is yes, there are. There are, undoubtedly are, and in principle there have to be. Because classical statistics, you might think rather quixotically again, lays itself open on what's called, uh, on what's called by the name and Pearson approach, a, a type 1 error, a 5% chance of making a type 1 error, that is of falsely rejecting uh, a, a, a null hypothesis of no difference between two treatments, between the experimental control treatment, when in fact that, that null hypothesis is true. Five percent of the time on average you expect falsely to reject a true null hypothesis and therefore conclude falsely that the whole, that homeopathy was performed better than placebo in, the, in, the, in that trial. So that's bound to be the case and it even turned out that uh, the, the first meta-analysis, which wasn't done by any believer in... Meta-analysis means 
that you take all the trials that you've got and you look at the ones that, are good, that you think of as good quality and you try to put, the, the, you try to put them all together as if it was all one mega trial uh, to give you a, a more allegedly more uh, reliable uh, result. And it, the first one actually came out in favor of homeopathy, tiny effect, but uh, in favor of homeopathy. And I remember reading that. Did that have any effect on my beliefs about homeopathy? Did it make me think for a moment that homeopathy actually is anything more than the placebo effect? Not on your life. Uh, because, because I stick to something called uh, the principle of total evidence. That is, you've got to take, you can't, you can't, despite what Fisher recommends, there's no such thing as what the trial in isolation tells you. Of course, it, it's perfectly possible, we know, we know that you'll get this systematic error anyway, it's perfectly possible in, the, in an isolated trial you get a certain uh, so-called positive outcome, but you've got massive amounts of evidence that, that, that you can't have anything other than a placebo effect from pure water, and pure water is what you're giving people if the diluent is water for homeopathic remedy. Vast amounts of evidence. Uh, to weigh against this. So they maybe move, you know, as the Bayesian treatment would suggest, you maybe move a tiny, tiny fraction if you've got a positive result, but it really is negligible because you've got all this other evidence. So there's another general principle that it's, it's worth noting that will help us to construct a, a more defensible account of what, uh, of what evidence means when we say that something should be based on evidence. And that, that it's a consequence, really, of the principle of total evidence that you should always take the to all the evidence into account. Uh, namely, that far from it being scientifically questionable to take into account evidence from outside the trial when interpreting the impact of the evidence yielded by that individual trial, rationality demands that you do so. It's not, you can't say, oh, well, in fact, it's a mistake always to talk about, uh, let's say, in this case, homeopathy being effective in the trial. It's not effective in the trial. That's not what you observe. What you observe is a certain number of people with the, with, who get the outcome you're looking for in, in the experimental group and a certain amount, who, who, a different number in general, who, who get it in the control group, who get the outcome of, that you're measuring in the control group. It's an inductive inference from that to say that, uh, that, it, that homeopathy outperformed uh, placebo in that trial. And you wouldn't want to make that inductive inference if you've got all this other evidence that says that it can't. So rationality, I think in this case, Bayesianism, as always, is so much more in line with intuitive scientific common sense. Um, okay, well, the obvious uh, illustration of the principle of total evidence, you wouldn't want expect somebody who learnt philosophy at the feet, initially at the feet of Sir Karl Popper uh, not to have a black swan swimming, swimming it swimming in at some point in the lecture. Uh, it was perfectly reasonable for European uh, ornithologists to infer from the fact that, that, from the evidence about every swan that they'd seen being white, uh, that there was a reasonable probability at least that all swans are white. But once, once you've seen a black swan, no amount of white swans can possibly any longer be evidence for the theory that all swans are white, because you know then that it's not the true that all swans are white. The, the observation of the black swan reduces the probability of all swans are white to, to zero, and any number of sw white swans that you see later are not going to change that. So there's no confirmation on the most serious account of confirmation that we have, namely Bayesian one, uh, that you can possibly get. Okay. So 
let, let's, uh, let, let me, because we're getting close to the end. Uh, so the evidence is that homeopathy is and can be no more effective than placebo, but it obviously isn't less effective than placebo. Couldn't be. Uh, and that means it is effective. People don't realize uh, because the placebo is effective for a, a narrow but still important range of conditions, one I've already mentioned, the uh, principally uh, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, mild depression, and above all pain, though also Parkinson's disease, interestingly enough. Uh, regular evidence-based medics uh, do find the placebo effect a bit difficult. To, to, it feels like you know, it's voodoo, it's the opposite of science. After all, the main hate figure for evidence-based medicine is the snake oil salesman who's trading in the placebo effect. Uh, and so you get people like, but let me do this very quickly, uh, Bradford Hill talking about it basically equating giving a placebo with doing nothing, which is just not true in certain important areas. And the same with Ben, ben Goldacre here. He complains mm -hmm. about the FDA setting the bar very low. Drugs are only required to prove that they're better than nothing, by which he means that they survive placebo-controlled trials. So he's equating uh, doing, uh, giving somebody a placebo with doing, with, with, with doing nothing. And that's just not true. Uh, similarly, it's, it's not clear what the, always what the British Homeopathic Association view is here. Uh, on their website, they say homeopathy is a holistic medicine which uses highly diluted substance with the aim of triggering the body's own healing mechanisms, which sounds awfully like placebo effect. But then when, when people say that the evidence is that uh, any effect of, of homeopathy is the placebo effect, they get terribly hot under the collar. It's not, they don't like that. Um, but there's very strong evidence that there's a, there's a real placebo science, actually, and there's very strong evidence that there is a placebo effect. And it comes mostly, in my view, from uh, the, open and the open against closed method uh, that's, been, that's been around for a long time, uh, but is, in is, is increasingly producing powerful results. So way back in 1984, uh, in a treatment, uh, this article by Levine et al., uh, in a treatment of post-operative pain, in fact, the removal of the third molar, the same relief was experienced by the closed group. That means people who've got a drip up and they don't know that they're getting morphine. Uh, they got the same pain relief as in the open group injected with saline solution, so injected with a placebo. Open means that they were treated by a, a, a doctor, an authority figure, uh, telling them that they were giving that they were giving a, they were being given the treatment and that they would have an analgesic effect. They got exactly the same analgesic effect in that open group as in the group where people didn't know what they were getting, but in fact they were getting uh, six to eight milligrams of morphine. Got exactly the same amount of pain relief. Uh, yeah, and then just picking some results at random here. Uh, Price et al. applied placebo creams and graded levels of heat stimulation on three adjacent areas of the forearm, giving by surreptitiously modifying the extent of the irritation uh, the, uh, of, the, of the heat, uh, conditioning to think that uh, the cream A was a strong analgesic. They told them it was a strong analgesic, and as it were, they proved it by giving them a very small heat uh, stimulation. Cream B was a weak analgesic, which they sort of got them used to by giving them a moderate, but not high. And then uh, cream C was controlled. They, they said they told them that it was a placebo cream, uh, and, and they gave them 
a, a big whack of heat for, for that. Uh, they then gave uh, the same intensity for all three regions, and the participants rated the pain as the, much more pain in the control setting than with what was allegedly a weak analgesic. Uh, and again, uh, much more than it was much higher when uh, they'd been conditioned to think that it was a strong analgesic. And it's not, this isn't just, this isn't sort of people thinking they have less pain, which you might, which is a sort of interesting concept anyway. We know that there are physiological correlates. We know, for example, from very strong evidence that I'll mention in a minute, uh, that expectations cause the, the, the reason why you get a placebo effect of a certain kind, there are different kinds of placebo effects, is that uh, expectat you get expectations of, of recovery, and those expectations generate the release of, en of endogenous opioids, endorphins, uh, and the early evidence that that was true was a whole series of experiments showing that the placebo analgesic effect that they identified in other experiments was blocked if you gave people the known opioid antagonist naloxone. So if you gave people naloxone, which was known to repress, uh, was, was an opioid antagonist, then you didn't any longer get the placebo effect, even in situations in which you would get the placebo effect. So this is very strong evidence that it's, it's ex expectations causing the release of endogenous opioids that produces the placebo effect. This is the doyen of, of current doyen of, of uh, closed open methodology, Fabrizio Benedetti. He also does interesting work on relating it to neurological stuff. Uh, and he's got a wonderful book called Placebo Effects, which I recommend. So, although it's natural for any evidence-based person to be suspicious of homeopathy, and in particular of the, uh, well, let's go on as it says. Uh, it, 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 it's natural for any evidence-based person to be suspicious of homeopathy. There is evidence that it works as a placebo effect. Of course, it couldn't be anything else, given the evidence. And therefore, in a narrow range of conditions, it need, that should be constantly emphasized. There's no homeopathic treatment for cancer or hepatitis C or whatever. Uh, and it seems to me that EBMers should need to follow the evidence wherever it may lead, even if they don't like where it leads, because they're a bit suspicious of the, of the uh, placebo effect. And that means, because the next thing after we've got evidence-based beliefs, evidence-based theories, we'd be thinking about evidence-based policy based on those evidentially-based beliefs. Uh, and just again to show that things are a bit more complex than you might think they would be, uh, if ever they look like an obvious evidence-based policy, uh, it would be that we should ban NHS prescriptions of homeopathic remedies. Uh, and that's current, that's a, a, a present you can get in certain areas. Some areas have banned it, uh, some NHS boards have banned it, but you can still get it under the NHS. And two organizations that I thoroughly uh, approve of, they be good thinking, is Simon Singh's charity and Humanist UK, who did me the great honor a couple of months ago of making me a patron alongside Stuart Lee and Ricky Gervais and other people that <laughs> I admire greatly. Uh, they backed this policy, and you would think, for, of course, it's a good idea, but the argument that they give is based on the claim that homeopathic remedies don't work. But they do work. That, that, they don't work for cancer, hepatitis C, and so on. Certainly that principle would justify a ban for those but not for placebo-responsive conditions. So surprisingly, if they're going to argue for an across-the-board ban, then it would need to be an argument for a ban despite the fact that they work and not on the basis that they don't work, at least, as I say, for this narrow range of conditions. Okay, take-home messages. Of course, all theories in whatever discipline should be based on evidence. The interest is in the details. 
And these details don't always turn out to be straightforward. Surprise, surprise. However, there are some general principles that we've gathered along the way that are going to help us to, to arrive at a serious uh, position on what uh, evidence-based medicine or evidence-based X is. Uh, and and the, the consistency with the evidence is not enough. We do require independent testability. You can hold on to theories despite negative evidence, but only if in the process you make some new predictions that turn out to be correct. That's basically like a Tosh degenerating research versus progressive research programs. Evidence is, for, is stronger for T to the extent that it counts against plausible rivals to T, uh, and you always need to take into account total evidence. And for a further take-home message for clinicians in the audience is, is that, though, I know that all the clinicians that I know at any rate don't need this message because they know it's already, that they already take it on board, namely that instead of ignoring it, doctors should try to enhance the placebo effect. Okay, sorry I went on so long. Thank you very much.